Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. We're doing some work at the moment around a concept called psychological safety. I'm sure you across it. And I think um, it's, it's one of the um, areas that is particularly at risk with remote working and people feeling isolated, that sense of psychological safety, which is um, the perception of a person that they are respected and able to speak out and um, kind of question the status quo. Um, Those are the wise words of Candace Smith. Quick bit of housekeeping and we'll get right back to Candace. Firstly, welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We had a terrific response to last week's episode with Astra Dispensary, being flooded with calls and visits following the episode from lots of Humans of Purpose listeners. You might have also seen that we've got a great write-up in the Age Monday paper, both online and in print, and there's a link in our show notes. The article covers the lack of freedom public servants have to speak freely and engage in things like podcasting or volunteering outside of work hours. Thanks so much to Annika and Michael for making this story happen. And also thank you to all of you who have really reached out and made me feel very safe, secure, and welcome in sharing my story. Um, it's, it's truly been a heartwarming day, and um, it's been very special to have the support of the listeners and the wider community in this struggle. So just to tell you in brief, in my last job in the public service, I was told that if I launched a new season of Humans of Purpose, I'd be sacked. So I resigned soon after and found a new job the following week at Spark Strategy. Spark are a B Corp and strategic consultancy working with not-for-profit, government, philanthropic and corporate clients. The new job is a great cultural fit for me and the team at Spark have fully supported me in my job and everything I do outside of it too. It's completely the opposite of what I experienced working at the Department of Justice. Our guest today is Candace Smith, who is Head of Wellbeing at AIA Australia. AIA Australia is a life and health insurance specialist with over 47 years of experience. They offer a range of products that protect the financial health and well-being of more than 2.5 million Australians. This was a great conversation with Candice where we discussed workplace mental health and well-being, the role business can play in ensuring positive mental health, and the role technology is playing in AIA's innovative approach to well-being. A special thank you to Sharice at the Shared Value Project for introducing me to Candice, and also thanks to Catherine at AIA for her support. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, first off, I'll, I want to say that I'm already enthralled by your South African accent. I love it. So <laughs> I'll be paying close attention to every word you say today. <laughs> that makes one of us. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you get that a lot. Um, but look, I would love it if you would talk to us a little bit about your journey into mental health and wellness and how you've ended up at AIA, one of Australia's biggest corporations um, in this space. Mm-hmm. So I qualified as a dietitian, interestingly, um, and practiced in, in private practice. So in a sports setting, as well as a um, disease management setting for a number of years, both in um, South Africa, as well as abroad. So in the UK, and then I worked for Discovery. Um, I moved from private practice into working for Discovery on their high-risk clients and helping to bring down their risk factors uh, from a non-communicable disease perspective. Um, and Discovery is is uh, the founding um, company of Vi- the Vitality Program, which is globally 
um, the largest and most well-known behavioral economics-based well-being program. Um, and I actually ended up being at Discovery in, in the Vitality well-being team for, um, for 12 years and worked in the um, well-being thought leadership research product development t- team um, building out the Vitality program, which is linked to the life insurance and health insurance businesses and really um, kind of focuses on on what Adrian Gore, who's the founder of Discovery, called um, shared value insurance, which is effectively um, a now proven model that changing or incentivizing healthy behaviors has a significant impact not only on the customer, but also on society and then on, on the insurer f- from the perspective that it brings down claims. So a real win-win-win situation. And then three years ago, I immigrated to Australia with my um, my family and joined AIA, who is the licensor of the Vitality Program in the Asia-Pacific region, um, and now head up the well-being team for for AIA across the enterprise in Australia and New Zealand. So helping the life insurance, health insurance, and vitality businesses um, really achieve our core purpose of um, championing Australia and New Zealand to be the healthiest and best protected nations in the world. Um, it's it's an incredible kind of position to, to be in, to be able to use um, what would typically be, um, I suppose, corporate uh, private sector, but to make such a fundamental impact on, or, or have the opportunity to make a fundamental impact on on public health. Yeah, it's incredible, and I suppose um, you know I think you cover at least or impact at least three point eight million Australians or something as like AIA. Yep. AIA. Yeah. So it's an incredible impact on a significant portion of our society. I guess I'd be keen to break it down a bit by both employer and employee kind of benefits and and how does mental health in the workplace affected by a program like AIAs from both perspectives? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think there's also a third component for us and uh, Damien, our CEO, very um, carefully kind of chose the words around the vision, which is to to champion Australia and New Zealand as a nation, um, not purely AIA customers. And the work that we do um, as a well-being team is not only for our customers and our employees, but also more broadly um, contributing to the literature and engaging with government um, and really just contributing to the conversation around mental health and, um, you know, physical uh, physical health as well. So we have a number of different pillars that we look at, um, move well, eat well, think well, and plan well. And so particularly at the moment, mental health being um, you know, kind of the most pertinent of those for a number of reasons, which you're obviously very aware of. Um, so we think of it in a number of different ways, and it really does permeate and come through everything that we do, this focus on mental health. Um, from a customer's perspective, we look at it across, we have a mental health working group that looks at it across um, the entire spectrum of our customers, A, life cycle, but also B, at, at each point that they engage with us as a as a customer and our well-being framework is is one that looks at um our customers from a from the point of view of predict prevent diagnose treat and recover 
uh, where in a, typically a, a life insurer or, or even a health insurer would be, you know, there when something goes wrong just to help to pay a claim. Mm. Uh, we very much work with our customers' well-being um, at the heart of everything that we do. So we ensure that we put that focus on health promotion and prevention so that we ensure that, you know, hopefully they aren't actually suffering as much as they might otherwise without that support. So it sounds a bit to me like you're in the business of prevention-oriented behavior change for your customers, which is like quite an unusual take on uh, life insurance, I would have thought. Absolutely. And that's exa- that, that's beautifully articulated. Um, I'm, I can't remember if it was The Economist or one of the magazines that spoke about vitality as a benevolent bribe, that effectively <laughs> we're saying um, we know and we have um, a huge amount of um, kind of actuarial muscle behind behind proving that um, incentives and behavioral nudges have an impact on changing behaviors and those changed behaviors have an impact on health outcomes. So we, we in a privileged position to know that from a, from an economic and ROI perspective. And so then are in, you know, very comfortable to invest significant amounts in, in, in these prevention activities, which, are, which an insurer typically wouldn't do. Um, there's so much literature that shows that prevention is the space that we should all be focusing on. Like we, you know, you hear people speaking about upstream or, um, you know, going to the source of the the issue. And um, it really is, it, it, like I said, it, I, I wouldn't have typically or traditionally thought of myself being excited to work in the insurance space, but it really isn't um it isn't about that for us. It's about really creating meaningful impact in the space of um, healthier, longer, better lives, which is, I suppose, the the core purpose of AIA's reason for being, which is wonderful. It's very humanistic. Um, how do you, what do you actually do to get people to take more of an interest in their health and be a bit more preventive? What kind of models do you deploy and uh, what kind of communications techniques do you use to really get people to take action? Because I guess we know one of the hardest things is um, that action intention gap. So how do you get somebody, you can tell somebody, look, it's really important for you to sleep a lot or to exercise, but to get people to do it is very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And, and not even, not even just the, um, intention action gap, but just the knowledge intention gap even. So, um, I, I would venture a guess that there are very few people, certainly in a country like Australia, that don't know that physical activity is good for you or believe that smoking is bad for you or, you know, all of these things that we know. So that, that knowledge exists. Um, but even within that space, getting somebody to even intend to change, so to move through the stages of change model is a tricky thing to do. Um, and that's where we heavily leverage um, kind of three different pieces, which is uh, the theory of behavioral economics. So a number of particularly incentives. So we've had um, a huge amount of success with using incentives. So effectively, like I said, benevolently bribing bribing people, so paying them to do what we know is healthy for them, um, and as well as a number of other behavioral economics theories. So we've done um, research and, and customer testing on using uh, loss aversion, for example. So um, the there's a body of research that shows that as humans, we are 50% more likely to value something once we have it than oh, – oh, 
be afraid of losing something rather than gaining it. So yep. we use that sort of framing where we give people um, a benefit up front and then uh, frame it that if they don't exercise or they don't engage in a certain activity, they might lose that. Um, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so manipulative, but in a good way. Yes. And often uh, we've been asked as behavioral economics isn't always necessarily used for good as an, um, which is why as a kind of a health professional or somebody that is passionate about public health, it's, it's the working in an organization that's so fundamentally believes in shared value is, is such a critical thing. And that, and that kind of virtuous cycle of it's great for the human, it's great for society and the business benefits as well. So really on solving these societal problems profitably, um, if that cycle is broken, so if you're using the behavioral economics for, I suppose, ill or profit, but the the person isn't um, gaining or society isn't gaining, then that you know that cycle is is in question, and we really kind of use that as our center. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's been, and and vitality is available to over fourteen million members worldwide um, in eighteen different countries, and it's. Um, yeah, very much proven that that those shifts can be sustainably um, maintained through these uh, various behavioral economics techniques. As an ethical aside, can you be too successful at implementing behavior change intervention programs, even if they're for health? No. <laughs> so my yeah, my short answer is um, if you are implementing positive behavior change, you could never be too successful. Um, if you break it down to say, could somebody over-exercise or under-eat? Absolutely. But that would then, I suppose the argument there would be that it, that isn't then positive behavior change. So there is no, no such thing as too much positive behavior change, but there is such thing as extreme um, kind of extreme behavior around health, healthy or, or orthorexia, which is obsession with, um, you know, what people eat or over-exercising. We were actually um, having a conversation with um, a potential collaborator in the not-for-profit space today, uh, and they focus on eating disorders. And they were saying one of the big challenges that they have is people obsessively and over-exercising. And, you know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't recommend that people are physically active, mm. but it does mean that certain individuals need, you need to be careful around that messaging and positive body image, et cetera. So there's always nuances. Um, but I would argue there is no such thing as too much positive behavior change. Well said. <laughs> um, I want to move to talk a bit about mentally healthy workplaces. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, um, it's no secret that we're spending, um, more time than ever as people in Australia working longer hours. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in a way COVID has even further blurred the boundaries between what's home time and what's work time so that maybe there isn't that separation anymore. I'm curious as to your insights at AIA as a centre of excellence in promoting healthy workplaces, how do you do it at AIA and what are your kind of conventions, rules, behaviours and beliefs? Yeah, so... If it's okay, I'll answer that in, in two parts. One one is um, AIA as an employer, but we also have um, through the Vitality program a number of um, different mental well-being assessments that we track and noticed a distinct difference in answers over the period of COVID, which might be um, interesting as well. So 
I was first just a personal um, observation. I was massively surprised actually with to notice what you just mentioned is that that being at home would actually make us work more and feel like we work more than the other way around. It's so surprising, isn't it? I, but I, I've been completely blown away by how much longer I work now. Um, you know, often, and we actually were speaking about it in, in an engagement meeting today is like, I often finish after eight and it's just because you don't move and it's very easy to set up a zoom call and you almost, um, the boundaries have just been kind of lost. And mm. there's this, uh, there seems to be, you know, recognition of that. Um, but it's going to take a little while to, to correct. But so AIA, um, has been, um, incredible and very much practices what they preach as a, um, as an organization, um, as, as an employer and an organization. So as an employer, we've been very clear that we've set times where meetings are not um, allowed, where people are then able to spend time doing work that gets created by all of the meetings that we have. We seriously re-looking at our meeting culture. What, um, what times are meetings not allowed? Fridays, whole of Friday, yep. um, and after work hours. And then a question arose, which is, is such a relevant question nowadays, is work hours in what country? So yeah. we, we work with a number of different um, organizations in different countries. And so if it's still work hours in Munich, it's, you know, do you do you then allow that? Or So people also, I think, need to understand in a, in a global um, a more global organization or, or workforce, I think, that that you would need to be flexible within your flexibility. Mm. And we need to equip employees to understand what those boundaries are for themselves because I think that's often the, often the case. Well, especially when there's a power differential. Like as an employee, um, it's very hard to say to a manager, look, what you're doing here – isn't really consistent with a healthy workplace culture. Yeah, well, and and to on a different note, sometimes getting people to regulate for themselves, even if it isn't a manager putting pressure on them, it's them putting pressure on themselves mm. is the hardest thing to shift. Mm. So from a manager's perspective, you can try and do a top-down approach, but if people are just not um, even consciously aware that these boundaries are being blurred and then aren't... Um, so we have a huge focus on that and spend a huge amount of time um, understanding we've implemented things like every single meeting starts with people giving the two words of how they feel. Um, oh, I like that. And I have to go entire meeting. We have to go around the room and say, these are the two words I'm feeling overwhelmed, but I'm excited or I'm feeling. So there's that check-in that's an automatic um, kind of temperature check consistently. And that's been since, since COVID. Um, I think one of the, the things that is particularly difficult with remote working is that sense of or potential sense of isolation or not feeling like you're connected to something. So a part of a family necessarily. Um, and I don't think that you are able to get that same human energy from seven hours of zoom calls as you would, um, from engaging with another human being. And, it's a big challenge for companies to solve, to create or find a new balance. So um, Damien speaks about we need to go forward to work, not back to work, because what we were doing before wasn't working and it was broken. Yeah. Um, and we've got this kind of 
um, forced stop to reflect and say, what, you know, what, what do we not want to go back to and what, what do we want to keep and what do we actually not want to, um, keep. And we very thoughtfully and carefully are taking stock of those things. And, um, there's a huge amount of consultation around how are people feeling? How have they felt with the flexible working? Um, I think it's around 78% of people, want to be back in the office for some of the time. Um, it's very unlikely that there'll be a full complement of staff in the office five days a week, I'm sure, ever again. I find that just incredible. I find it staggering. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't agree with me in my perspectives on work in the office, but I think the office, like good offices, to be in an office environment is optimal. Um, I, I detested working from home so much that I moved myself into a co-work space and my happiness levels, productivity and sense of belonging just shot up um, th- through the roof. So I, I very much... I consider myself an introvert, but I need human engagement. Uh, and I feel that Zoom meetings and being on Teams all day, it doesn't satisfy me in the same way that sitting down for a coffee with someone does. Yeah, me neither. And I listen to people sort of saying things like, oh, um, the future of work is people will decide for themselves how many days they want to come back into the office and otherwise they'll be at home. But who really wants to be at home working? I mean, I. Yeah, I, I've been blown away yeah. by people, and part of it, and I and I think this is the part that I haven't been able to get my head around. Is that I think part of it is that people want to be at home because then they're not working. Maybe, but it feels like it's a bit the opposite. But the, I think the data tells us that, that they, they are working more. Yeah, more, and I think um, actually. People being from home and being good at it is something that no one expected yeah. because presenteeism was a problem before. Now it's it's almost a non-existent part of the productivity losses. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's sort of, I mean, you'd almost have to sort of think that maybe we've created a new problem and that's small pockets of absenteeism at home. Yeah. Where maybe you're supposed to be at home, but you're not at home. Yeah. But it looks, it sounds like most people really feel like they've been given the benefit of being at home. So like, it's like a gift. So you feel like maybe you owe your employer more hours or more work. To overprove yourself. Yeah. Yeah. To overprove yourself. Yeah. That's the impression that I kind of get from the way firms talk about it. Yeah. I, I, I am very interested and um, it is unclear to me as to where it's going to land. I think um, or feel personally the same as you. Um, the office environment and engaging with other people for me, particular, and I'm sure there's some jobs where it isn't necessary. Um, I'm certain there are. Mm. But for um, environments where a certain amount of collaboration, innovation, creativity is required, um, I think humans feed off of each other's energy, whether they know they do or don't. Mm. Um, and also – you know, and and at AIA, it's we're we're going forward to work in sprints where we're testing um, ninety days at a time, um, different models mm. to say all you know this entire team needs to be in on a Monday and a Thursday, um, and then say so the next ninety days we'll say okay everyone gets to choose when they're in, and and kind of doing very kind of careful surveying and understanding you know which what works because this. One thing to say that I'm in the office at the same time as my team, but are we not then creating significant silos where teams aren't able to cross, um, yeah. collaborate, and then 
you know, in certain, in certain instances. So we, I, my team works very closely, um, with the product development team. So we provide clinical input, um, because, um, our well-being programs are evidence-based, so we have to provide clinical oversight to ensure that guidelines are met, etc. Um, and so we work very closely with the product as well as the technical delivery teams. And if we never ever meet those people face to face, there's some sort of breakdown. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we're working and and um, kind of carefully trying to understand the best model. And I think that'll be most organisations' reality for a number of months or years but your original question was around how does that impact mental health and how then do we address it and make sure that we're looking after it all the way through the process um it's we're doing some work at the moment around a concept called psychological safety i'm sure you've across it and i think um it's, it's one of the um, areas that is particularly at risk with remote working and people feeling isolated, that sense of psychological safety, which is um, the perception of a person that they are respected and able to speak out and um, kind of question the status quo. Um, if it's in a psychologically safe envir- work environment, people would feel that they are able to um, voice their opinions without risk of reputational damage, et cetera. And that um, is often lost with remote working. So companies don't only owe it to their employees because it's the right thing to do, but there is a very clear link in the literature between psychological safety and performance. So in an organization where no one feels safe to speak out. Um, and then, you know, the fact that we are remote working on our, and on teams and potentially have technological difficulties is nothing worse than when you're on a team's meeting and you start talking and then three other people start talking and, you know, you don't, you only have to go through that couple of times to just be like, it's, you know, it's actually just not even worth trying to talk over three other people. Um, you know, many of those good ideas will get lost um, performance certainly and innovation will will decline. So we're going to have to, um, partly because it's the right thing to do for society and mental illness is such an um, kind of an, an important and large problem for us all to fix at a, at a number of different levels. But also because it's going to affect company performance mm. if we don't if we don't focus on it and find a way to successfully focus on it because. Um, that's the other thing is that many companies understand its criticality, but are either ill-equipped or well-intended and um, kind of missing the mark with genuinely having a positive impact on. I have two things to relate. Uh, one sort of a story and another one's a question sort of tangential to what you were saying. I'll, I'll maybe relate the story first. So if I'm in an office environment and I get allocated a task, I have time with that manager or that person to have a back and forth about what the task involves and can go and check in at any point with them and get human feedback on how are my performances. I can then maybe feel a degree of comfort or safety and trust is built in that relationship. Mm-hmm. In the current environment, it feels like it's ping pong with emails back and forth with track changes and, uh, th- you know, when you read an email and it says, no, this is not what I'm looking for, I want something else, you can feel quite um, burnt. It's confronting. It's confronting. Mm-hmm. And and even when, you know, someone pops up and they want to have a quick Teams meeting with you to sort of say, look, um, actually, you know, this is really not what I asked for. Like, the, 
it's really hard to give clear direction and to feel like you understand what the task is remotely. Yeah. So I think that's a big source of um, frustration and I don't know how we're going to work that out in the current work paradigm. The second thing to ask is given most people are at home now um, and traditionally the businesses um, that operate in our country have control over workplace safety and well-being and mental health being a key part of that, how does a business or how do you advise businesses or members or um, you know even yourselves look after the mental health of your people when they're at home and not in an office? So there's two steps to that, I suppose. One is um, assessing it or understanding it in the first place. Um, and then the second is intervening or, or um, even if not intervening for people who are struggling with mental illness or mental uh, low mental well-being, it's, it's pr- kind of improving or promoting that sort of sense of resilience, etc. And I think assessing it um, – is a very, very important and often underestimated first step. Um, we work are working actually with a number of different um, organisations, some of which are um, you know startups and some of which are really well established around tools that can provide um, lead indicators into um, mental well the mental well-being status or even mood tracking devices um, that can be used. Both both when people are remote, but also um, when they're in the office, um, and and with varying degrees of success. But there there is a, a lot of focus from from our perspective as not only an employer with these sorts of check ins and um, the ability to assess and then keep track of the state of mental health of of our employees as a um, as an organization we use the vitality program. And so we also make the vitality program available to all staff um, just as a matter of course. Um, and there are, uh, we have a number of different mental wellbeing assessments within that. Um, so I mentioned a little bit earlier that we track that data and saw such significant um, kind of data shifts during the time of COVID. So from um, around April to June or Jun- July in 2020, um, and the most <laughs> remarkable of which, so there's a couple of different questions that asked, uh, how often do you experience stress related to your um, home environment? This is the one question related to your job or job security is another one um, related to your health um, and the safety of you and your family. And then related to kind of social um, connections and um I suppose the presence of, of um, social connectedness in your, in your life. And the increases were significant in all of those. But if you look at the one that you would expect to be the highest, so how, mm-hmm. you feel, and you, you have stress linked to a risk to your safety or your health mm-hmm. was uh, around a 71% increase um, of people that were experiencing stress linked to that. And a hundred and fifty six percent increase in people feeling stress linked to a reduced um, social connectedness. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. in an unprecedented global pandemic, we were less worried about that and more stressed by the fact that we were not feeling socially connected or like part of something, like you mentioned within the within the office. And so, we use those assessments, and then 
um, incentivize people with vitality points to co complete them a number of times a year. Um, and then we um, build or frame our interventions and, and partner with a number of different organizations um, off the back of those assessments. So we segment um, our population based on the answers to those questions and then intervene. Um, and we've done a um, kind of a full literature review to uh, identify and we've identified five areas of intervention that we believe has have sufficient um, scientific evidence to prove that they work. And that's um, physical health, which we know is, is inextricably linked to um, mental well-being, um, sleep, meditation and mindfulness, cognitive behavioral therapy in some instances, and then social connectedness. So we kind of group our interventions around those different areas that have been shown to be scientifically proven to have an impact. That's awesome. So um, I, I always like to get a bit personal with these things, but what do you do? Um, are you a meditator? Do you have other practices that you try and incorporate into your daily routine? That is a very good question. Um, so I, <laughs> I'm the same as I, I'm sure most people, chronically chronically busy. I'm a um, mother of three with a full-time job, etc. So time is um, – I mean, all of us are time poor – I think I, I've recently, um, which is probably not a great thing to um, admit to, recently restarted um, serious exercising, and and have certainly noticed the difference. I was speaking to, I was actually on a uh, speaking on a panel with a number of different financial advisors. Um, we were looking at the state of uh, mental health in the financial advice industry, um, and these these three. Um, people on the panel are doing particularly well in the space of, of, of mental health um, in spite of a number of challenges that that industry is facing. And every single one of them, very diverse backgrounds said that they um, have this kind of ritual of exercising in by themselves with um, either a podcast or some sort of self-improvement um, device that they listen to at the same time. So they're cramming in like really, um, this almost like mini self-help session in the morning. And so, you know, off the back of that, I've um, started doing that. And and what each of them said, which I think is the, is the best place to get to, is that they feel different or worse if they don't do that. So, you know, initially you do it because you know it's the right thing to do and eventually it becomes intrinsically motivated because you, you feel better when you do it. Um, I always, um, sorry, not always also am very aware that I need time out quiet time to be by myself. And, um, you mentioned you consider yourself an introvert. I think I would consider myself more of an extrovert, but so it's, it's important for me to very, um, you know, be very clear about the fact that I need also just time just for me to be by myself, which is difficult with three small children, but important thing for me to do. So time out. Um, I love to read. Um, I started painting during um, during COVID and actually restoring antique furniture. So, um, yeah, a number of different <laughs> different things. That's awesome. <laughs> um, talk to me. Talk to me a little bit about sort of the interesting perspective that AIA has that you're bigger than just for your members or as a, as a company you're trying to make a contribution to society and help all Australians with them into health and globally mm -hmm. um, and I think I'd like to hear a bit about the shared value lens on that as well and why that's important for you yeah so um, it's one of the reasons that I feel 
so um, daily, actually immensely grateful to be working in an organization like AIA and, and previously in Vitality is that we, we, um, so we have a well-being team uh, within AIA, which is um, we have someone looking after research and thought leadership. We have a data analytics person specifically on well-being data to track. Um, so we don't just, you know, pay lip service. We very much um, measure um, the impact that the the programs are having on behavior change and then linked to health outcomes. So we really are serious about wanting to make a difference. And then the um, product development and innovation, as I mentioned. And so through the research and thought leadership um, kind of strategy, we partner with a number of um, academic institutions, both locally in Australia and in New Zealand and globally, and use the data that we have, the significant and fairly unique data set that we have to um, analyze the link between these um, health promotion activities or, or prevention activities and the knock-on effect that that has on health outcomes. Um, and we've published, so Vitality's published over 20 different um, research studies in, in various medical journals. Um, and we've, in Australia, um, done done a piece of work with Melbourne University, also looking at the impact that the Vitality program has on on outcomes and that really helps. And then off of the back of that, we engage with a number of different stakeholders and work with those um, professors, academics and institutions to really amplify that message through um, kind of more consumer facing reports that we do to bring that critical conversation of shifting the the um, health care efforts upstream um, onto like when we launched Vitality in, in New Zealand, for example, we were on the front page of the paper because we turned it into a fittest city where we looked at the um, infrastructure of the various cities in New Zealand and how that um, impacts people's likelihood and ability to exercise. And we partnered with um, University of Auckland to do that. So really ensuring that the the literature um, is being... Um, disseminated in a way that is it's having impact we amplify a number of messages of a number of different um ngos and not-for-profits and work with the um, cancer council and work with diabetes australia um to use our not only our our significant customer base which as you mentioned is is uh, really large but also um our voice and our our ability and our um kind of pr and brand teams to um, speak about the importance of these things. Um, and I think it's, it's really, a an unusual, um, and really noble, um, kind of undertaking mm. for an insurer mm. to be, um, investing as much as AIA does, not only in a team that sits, um, you know, at, at kind of the strategy level of the business and is, as tracking everybody's, um, impact on wellbeing, but also, um, the resources that we put behind these different um, academic studies and sponsorships of various teams in the public health space. So it sounds to me like shared value for you is just a different way of seeing um, how to translate corporate value into societal value. Exactly right. Solving societal or serious societal problems in a way that remains profitable for the business. So there's there's CSR um, uh and, you know, various charity donations, all of which are amazing things to do. 
but the sustainability of doing it in in a in kind of a shared value creating way means that um you know it's not like a, purely a donation it, it's genuinely um creating value for the business so that ensures its sustainability and um creating value for society simultaneously um and we really kind of passionate about finding those opportunities that's very well said Hey, this has been a terrific conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. How can people connect with you and learn more about your work should they wish to do so? So we have um, a number of different um, pieces of content and uh, on the AIA website. Um, and the Vitality uh, program is also uh, available for, for everyone to have a look at and to engage with. Um, and that's www.aia.com. Terrific. And can people um, look you up on LinkedIn or w- w- do you want to give an email or are you happy for people to just sort of go to the website? Yep. So the website um, is probably the best place. We also have um, a LinkedIn page um, for AIA Australia um, where our Vitality program um, as well as our um, our various other reports that I mentioned would be would be there as well. Perfect. Well, thank you again so much for being part of this and I've, I've learned a lot. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm sure our audience will too. Thanks so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 